0: for these four or five days together. Generally, it's a privilege for us to come here. I think this has been my fourth time here, and each one has been a blessing to to me, and the occasions that Ellie, my wife, has been able to come with me have been a blessing to her as well. We want to especially thank, too, uh, the Brooks for their very gracious hospitality to us. They've done this now for us at least three times, and Ellie and I have been impressed that we have been with two believers who have a great servant's heart. And we have benefited from that servant's heart and and their ministry toward us. And thanks to all of you who have been so faithful in coming out to the sessions. Both Ellie and I have said, these people are very friendly people. And we just appreciate your, your willingness to come up and begin talking with us, interacting with us, and all the rest. So you've ministered to us. That you've given us the privilege of ministering to you as well. So again, from the depths of our heart, thank you very, very, very much. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and 23, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and 23, the apostle Paul wrote these words, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Gentiles foolishness this was Paul's way of saying that the christian gospel message that declared that people must believe in a crucified savior was a stumbling block to the jews Actually, it was an offensive scandal to Jewish people in Paul's day. And it was the height of intellectual madness as far as the Gentiles of the world, the Romans and Greeks, were concerned. In other words, he's saying that the cross of Jesus Christ, the fact that he died on a cross, was a stigma to Jews and Gentiles of the ancient world. Why was the gospel message that people must believe in a crucified Savior such a stigma to those people? The reason is because both Jews, Greeks, and Romans in the first century A.D. believed three significant things with regard to crucifixion. And we know this from ancient records that Romans and Greeks and also the Jews wrote about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. The first thing they believed was this, that crucifixion was the most horrible, degrading punishment ever devised by mankind. Now, we're not absolutely certain who were the first to invent crucifixion. Some say the ancient Phoenicians did. But the Romans had developed it to a real art, if you can call it an art, putting people to death, through that means. And whoever devised crucifixion as a form of of, of, of punishment Capital punishment, they designed that in such a way to cause the most terrifying and lengthy agony of pain that any human being could be called upon to endure. We're told that a man who had just normal health could sometimes exist for three days in absolute excruciating pain and agony before he would finally die and pass off the world scene. But not only was it designed to be so terrifying, and given such pain of suffering, it was always designed, also designed, to humiliate and shame the victim in the greatest way possible. In fact, it was so horrible, that crucifixion was designated the supreme Roman penalty. Even worse than being burned at the stake, or being decapitated, having your head cut off. That was the first thing they believed. Crucifixion was the most horrible, degrading form of punishment ever devised by mankind. Now, in light of that belief, here's the second thing that Jews, Greeks, and Romans believed about crucifixion in Jesus' time. That only three classes of people deserved to die by crucifixion. Now, before we look at those, let me read to you some statements that some unsaved people made back in that time about crucifixion. And this will help you understand why they believed only three classes of people deserved to die by that form of death. For example, Cicero who was a very famous Roman orator called crucifixion, quote, the most cruel and disgusting penalty, end of quote. He further made this statement, quote, let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. A quotation. That was Cicero's way of saying, May a Roman citizen never have to endure personally death on a cross, but in addition, may a Roman citizen never have to think about it in his mind, or witness crucifixion with his eyes, or hear about it with his ears because it is so horrendous, horrendous form of death. Josephus, a famous Jewish historian who lived in the land of Israel while Jesus was living, he was a contemporary of Jesus, said this about crucifixion. He called crucifixion, quote, the most wretched of deaths, the most wretched of deaths. And so because of that view, they said there are only three classes of people who deserve to die by crucifixion. The first class were traitors. Those who would betray their own people to an enemy. The second class, the most perverted, violent criminals. And the third class were slaves. Those three classes of people. In fact, so many slaves were crucified in the Roman Empire, some of them thousands at a time, were crucified in the Roman Empire, so many of them, that Crucifixion became properly known throughout the Roman Empire, quote, as the slave's punishment, the slave's punishment. Cicero, again, declared that crucifixion was the ultimate penalty for slaves. And because people believe that it's those three classes of people who deserve to die by crucifixion, again, traitors, violent, perverted criminals, or slaves, if you died on a cross you are automatically classified by the people of the world as belonging to those three groups and you would be regarded with utter contempt by people in the ancient world that's how strongly they believed about crucifixion being so terrible now there was a third thing that they believed about crucifixion as well it was this that it would be absolutely impossible for a son of god to be crucified again ancient literature Jewish, Greek, and Roman indicate that. It would be absolutely impossible for a son of God to be crucified. You see, the Jews and the pagan Gentiles stumbled over the fact that Christian people worshipped as the son of God, a person who had died the death of a slave, a perverted, violent criminal, or a traitor. They stumbled over that Christian belief. And because of that, to them, the idea that a crucified man could be the Son of God was an irreconcilable contradiction. It's just That's a complete contradiction. No Son of God could ever die by crucifixion. Now, what did the Jews base that belief upon? Well, they believed it, based it upon a statement in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. Deuteronomy 21, verse 23 said that anyone who is hanged on a tree and a cross was regarded as a form of a tree, anyone who's hanged on a tree is cursed by God. And so if you died on a cross, they understood that's a sign that you have been put under a curse of God. A curse of God. Now, of course, that statement, God put in the Mosaic Law to the Jewish people. And so to the Jewish way of thinking, well, God doesn't have a son, They believed God was only one person, not a triune God. They reject the idea that God has a son, but they said if God had a son, certainly God would never curse his own son. And so therefore, God would never allow his son to be crucified on a cross. The Greeks and the Romans, being pagan people, believed in many gods. They believed there were male gods and female goddesses who would cohabit with each other and give birth to sons of God. And they said none of our gods would have anything to do with crucifixion. Certainly none of our gods would allow one of their own sons to be put to death on a cross. And so the pagan Gentiles, together with the Jews, believed that this Christian gospel is an irreconcilable contradiction believing that a son of God could be crucified. Just some expressions of this. There was a, a Roman official called Pliny the Younger. And some of his writings have been preserved down to the present day. And he called the Christian belief that the Son of God died on the cross, he called that, quote, a perverse and extravagant superstition. A perverse and extravagant superstition. And then two other Roman writers, Tacitus and Suetonius, called the Christian gospel that the Son of God died on the cross. They called that, quote, a pernicious superstition. End of quotation. Archaeologists have uncovered some pagan graffiti that some pagan artist had put on the side of one of the Roman Palatine buildings, one of the Roman government buildings. And this pagan artist portrayed Jesus hanging on a cross. He portrayed Jesus with a human body, but to show his utter contempt for the Christian belief that Jesus on the cross was the Son of God, he showed Jesus with the head of an ass, a donkey on his head. And then he portrayed a man by the name of Alexa Menos standing near the cross in an attitude of worship or adoration toward Jesus. And in contemptible words, this pagan artist scrawled underneath the picture, Alexa Menos adores his God, showing utter contempt for the Christian belief that Jesus, Son of God, died on a cross there at Calvary. Now, in light of these beliefs of Jews and Gentiles concerning crucifixion. Notice how significant several statements about Jesus and his crucifixion in the word of God. Look, if you would, please, at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Where the Apostle Paul indicates that Jesus, before he became, down to planet Earth, incarnated in human flesh, was equal with God. He had the same divine nature with all the same divine attributes as God the Father. So in personhood, he was the absolute equal of God the Father. And Paul also states there that before Jesus came to planet Earth, became incarnated in human flesh, he existed in the form of God. And we indicated in one of our earlier studies this week that the word form there refers to outward appearance. That within the spirit realm, even though Jesus didn't have a physical body at that time, but within the spirit realm, he had the outward appearance of absolute deity, of absolute deity, the equal of the Father. But Paul goes on to say, and the Greek language is what expresses this, that although being in the form of God, that would have given Jesus great privileges, They're in the spirit realm. Greater privileges, obviously, than the angels would have. And the angels would have seen him in in that form of absolute deity and know that he was absolute deity. But in spite of the fact that gave him great privileges, Jesus didn't look upon those privileges as something to be selfishly clutched and held on to for his own personal benefit. And the way he demonstrated that he wouldn't hold on to that selfishly for his own benefit is that Paul goes on to say there are Philippians 2. The Greek language says this, that when Jesus came into the world, he emptied himself of something. We saw he didn't empty himself of his deity. He still had it. He didn't empty himself of even one attribute of his deity. But what he emptied himself of when he came down the world was the outward appearance of deity. And Paul says, then he humbled himself before the world, knowing that by doing this, the world would heap all sorts of contempt upon him and say he's not who he claimed to be, he humbled himself before the world by exchanging the outward form of his deity, the outward appearance of his deity, for the form of a slave. The outward appearance of a slave. And Paul goes on to say how he did that. He did that by dying the slave's death. What the ancient world called the slave's death. Dying on a cross. He was willing To let have the world conclude he can't be a son of God because no son of God would die by crucifixion. He's no better than a slave. No better than a slave. Jesus voluntarily did that for you and for me. Why? Because he loved us. He was much more concerned for your welfare and my welfare than his own. He was willing to lay aside temporarily the outward appearance of his deity and exchange it for the outward appearance of the slave, knowing full well what was going to happen. He would go to a cross. He'd die the form of death that was the most contemptible form of death to the minds of the ancient people of the world. He would die the death that they called the slave's death. And thereby the world would end up saying, He's no better than a worthless slave. But he did it because he loved you and he loved me. He was more concerned for your welfare and mine than his own welfare. Then, in light of the fact that he died what was called the slave's punishment, look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. The writer of Hebrews speaking about Jesus, made this statement. That Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Now what he says here, that Jesus, going to the cross, despised the shame the word translated despised in some of our translations, it means he disregarded the shame. He disregarded the shame that he knew would be heaped upon him. It could be translated he didn't care about the shame that would be heaped upon him. Or it could also uh, be translated that he was not afraid of the shame that would be heaped upon him. He knew full well that tremendous shame would be heaped upon him by Jew, Greek, and Roman by dying, crucifixion, but he wasn't concerned about that shame that they would put upon him. And when it says here that consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, the the word translated contradiction in some English translation means hostility or rebellion. He was going to receive a lot of hostility and rebellion against him by dying that death on the cross. But uh, he was willing to endure that Knowing that would be heaped upon him, he was willing to endure that and we're told why. For the joy that was set before him. What do they mean by that? The joy of knowing that by his dying that form of death and having all sorts of shame heaped upon him and hostility and enmity from people of the world, that by dying that form of death, countless Millions of people could be saved from the eternal penalty of their sins and be made the children of God, who receive God's gift of eternal life and spend eternity in blessing with God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Angels forever and ever and ever. The joy of people getting saved, made right with the true, the living God, was one of the things that prompted them to be willing to not be concerned about the shame of crucifixion. Be willing to allow all sorts of enmity to be heaped upon him and hurled at him even while he was on the cross. Willing to pay that price for the joy of knowing what this would mean for countless millions of people down through the ages of time after his death on that cross. Now, in view of the ancient world's conviction or belief that it would be impossible for a son of God to be crucified, are some other interesting statements we have from ancient times. One of the most vocal pagan opponents of early Christianity and the gospel that the apostles and Christians were preaching was a man by the name of Celsus. And he wrote tremendous pieces of literature attacking Christianity, the heart of Christianity, that the Savior is one who died by death on the cross. Listen to what Celsus said to Christians. Quote, refer to Jesus. But if he was really so great, he ought, in order to display his divinity, to have disappeared suddenly from the cross. End of quotation. In essence, this is what Celsus was saying to Christians at that time. <laughs> you Christians keep running around and saying Jesus was so great. He's so great. He's the Son of God. We ought to worship him. He said, listen, if he was really so great as you claim, including the Son of God, be an absolute deity in human flesh, then he should have disappeared suddenly from the cross. And what he's saying is, the fact that Jesus stayed on that cross and died by crucifixion is all the, the truth I need to know to conclude he's not who you claim he is, the Son of God. If he stayed there and died That'd be all the proof I would need. He's not deity, the Son of God, incarnated in human flesh. If you turn to Matthew 27, Matthew 27, verses 39 through 44, Matthew 27, verses 39 through 44, we have the record of enemies, Jewish enemies of Jesus, saying the same thing to him while he's on the cross. Matthew 27. Verses 39 through 44, we read, And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, If you be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking him with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the King of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him, let God deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also who were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. What Celsa's statement in this record from Matthew 27 are saying to us is this. Since the Gentiles and Jews believed that no Son of God be, could be crucified, they were convinced that if Jesus truly was the Son of God, surely he or God would have removed him from the cross before crucifixion could complete its death sentence against the Lord Jesus. To their way of thinking, the very fact that Jesus remained on that cross and died by crucifixion was conclusive proof that he was not the Son of God. Totally reject the idea he's the Son of God. And so the world passed this this verdict upon him. Jesus of Nazareth was not the Son of God. Was not the Son of God. But God had a very unique way of annulling that verdict by resurrecting Jesus Christ from the dead. Look, if you would, please, at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and verses 3 and 4. The Apostle Paul, having in mind here the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, and in verse 3 of Romans chapter 1, he indicates that Jesus was a a literal, physical, biological descendant of King David. But notice again Romans 1, verse 3. Speaking of God, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, how? By the resurrection from the dead. Paul said, when God resurrected Jesus from the dead, Three days after his dead body has been buried in the tomb, God was thereby making a declaration to the whole world. His declaration was this. I am resurrecting Jesus Christ from the dead. as my way of saying to you, your verdict concerning him is totally wrong. I'm declaring to you by resurrecting from the dead, he is my son. I don't care if he did die on a cross. What you concluded concerning him. I'm reversing your verdict and showing you it's totally false. You resurrect somebody from the dead. You can't. I'm resurrecting from the dead as my declaration to you. He is the son of God. He is my son. Now, by way of application, what lessons... Are we to learn from what the ancient world believed about crucifixion and therefore the false things they believed about Jesus? What lessons can we learn from this? Quite a number of them. Number one, God's thoughts and ways are not man's thoughts and ways. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As high as heaven is above the earth, so are my thoughts and ways higher than your ways and thoughts. Apply that to what we're seeing here. You know, if if you'd been uh, somebody living back there in the first century when Jesus was living, and here you had a group of people you had somebody you thought was really great and you wanted to present him to the world and have the world accept somebody as the as the true Messiah, as you would be considering, okay, which person are we going to give to the world, you'd say, well, one thing we know is we don't dare give a crucified person to the world and expect them to accept him as the Messiah because of the built-in bias people have toward anybody that's been crucified. That would be man's way of thinking. Guess what kind of Savior and Messiah God gave to the world? A crucified Savior and Messiah. Very opposite of what the world would have thought. Completely contrary to man's wisdom of the ancient world. God's thoughts and ways are not man's thoughts and ways. They often contradict man's thoughts and ways. Second thing we can learn from this is this. God wants His people to present to Jews and Gentiles not what they want, but the very thing they despise. God wants His people to present to Jews and Gentiles, not what they want, but the very thing they despise. Listen to what Paul wrote in First Corinthians 1, 1, Corinthians 1, verses 21 through 23. Paul wrote, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign. They wanted supernatural signs to believe a message. The Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom, man-made wisdom, or philosophy. That's what they want. The Jews want miraculous signs. The Gentiles, they want man-made wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews, a stumbling block of the Gentiles' foolishness. What he's saying is, God wants his people to present to Jews and Gentiles not what they want, miraculous signs or man made wisdom, but the very thing they despise a crucified Savior. A crucified Savior. And like that, there's a third thing we can learn from this. Neither neither Jew nor Gentile Gentile can be saved apart from hearing and believing the offensive message concerning the crucifixion of Jesus. Neither neither Jew nor Gentile can be saved apart from hearing and believing the offensive message concerning the crucifixion of Jesus. Again, in, in 1 Corinthians 1... And uh, verse 18, Paul says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us who are saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. And what he's saying is, people cannot get saved. Apart from hearing and believing that offensive message of the stigma of the cross. That God's son died on a cross. For the sins of the world. And that prompts a fourth lesson to be learned from this. Any message that does not contain both the crucifixion and body resurrection of Jesus is not the gospel. Any message that does not contain both the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and his body resurrection is not the gospel. Listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, which, by the way, is the clear key passage in the Bible that clearly defines the content of the gospel that people have to hear to be saved. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, Paul says, I declare unto you the gospel by which you are saved, that Christ died for our sins. There is his crucifixion. For our sins. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. In fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. That this would happen to the Messiah. And that he was buried. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures. Again, as foretold uh, in the Old Testament. Now, since it is by the gospel that people are saved. And since no one can be saved apart from hearing and believing the message concerning Jesus' work on the cross of Calvary, crucifixion, then one must conclude that the crucifixion is an indispensable part of the gospel message. It's indispensable. If that's not in the message, that's not the real message. The crucifixion of Jesus, his death on the cross for the sins of the world, is an indispensable part of the gospel. But in addition... Since Jesus' resurrection was God's way of declaring to the world that Jesus was the Son of God in spite of crucifixion, then the resurrection is also an indispensable part of the gospel. That must be included there. Because the world must be informed of the fact that its verdict concerning the crucified Jesus was annulled by God. By God bodily resurrecting his Son from the dead three days after he died, on a cross That says then that the message that presents Jesus only as a friend who can solve personal problems or only as the greatest teacher or example of ethics and morality, that's not the gospel. That's not the message that can save people. Yes, He's a great friend, and if we place our faith in him and trust him for our daily lives, he can solve a lot of our personal problems. And yes, he was the greatest example of morality and ethics that the world has ever been given. The perfect one. But that's not the gospel message for salvation. The gospel message is his death on a cross for the sins of the world, burial and resurrection from the dead three days later. Now that leads us to a fifth lesson we can learn. The gospel dare not be sugar-coated or watered down. Nothing is to be added to it in order to make it more palatable to the world, in other words, more acceptable to the world, or to avoid or alleviate the stigma of the cross. Let me say it again. The gospel dare not be sugar-coated or watered down. Nothing to be added to it. We really should say nothing deleted from it, too. In order to make it more palatable or acceptable to the world. Or to avoid the stigma of the cross of Jesus Christ. If we do that to that message, if we do that to that message, Paul indicates we thereby render the crucifixion of Jesus void. First Corinthians 1 verse 17. First Corinthians 1, verse 17. Paul said, For Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words. In other words, not with man-made wisdom or philosophy to make it more acceptable. Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. He said if we play games with that message, that Paul clearly defines in 1 Corinthians 15 as the gospel of Jesus Christ. We play games with that. We delete essential elements from it. We add additions to it to make it more acceptable and less of an offense to human beings. Or if we try to somehow water it down or sugarcoat it somehow to make it more acceptable, Paul says we make the cross of Christ of no effect. It's that serious. It's that serious. Uh, Look at 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul's writing to the Corinthian Christians. Remember, they're Greeks. As you know, the Greeks, the main thing, as we read earlier, the Greeks, like other Gentiles, they wanted man-made wisdom. They were all wrapped up in man-made philosophy. And so Paul tells us what his attitude was when he went to Corinth for the first time to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, First Corinthians 2, verse 1 through 5. Paul says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom. In other words, man-made wisdom. I know you wanted man-made wisdom, philosophy. That's what you're always chasing after. But when I came to you with this critical message, I was determined not to present it to you with excellency of speech or, in essence, wrapped up in man-made wisdom to make it more acceptable to you, declare unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was determined. I was determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. The reason is he knew the built-in bias they had against the gospel. He knew that they were so turned off toward anybody who died on a cross that there'd be a, a building natural resistance to this message he had to give to them. And so he said, I came there in weakness and in fear, and much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of the power. Here's why. In order that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, which by the way is changing every time you turn around. Even the science books have to be keep changing because new discoveries rule out what they thought before. Man's wisdom has always changed. It's always a state of flux. So he said, I determined when I came to you, I wasn't going to use enticing words of man's wisdom, but it demonstrates the spirit of power that your faith should not stand the wisdom of them, but in the power of God. It's is exactly what Pastor Roxer was saying to us even today. Our job is to declare the message. We can't convince people to believe that. We can't. We can't crawl inside of them and change their attitudes and their mindset. But the Holy Spirit can. It's our job to present the message. It's the Holy Spirit's job to take it from there and convince the inner man of human beings, this is the truth, you better believe it. And so the whole point is, if people get saved, it's because of God's power doing it, not ours. We're to deliver the message. We're the messengers. But God's the one who determines the results of our ministry. And so we're to present the clear gospel of Jesus Christ, as clear as it can be. Not doctoring up in any way whatsoever to make it more acceptable or less offensive to people. Present exactly what God says they have to hear and believe in order to be saved, and then trust the Spirit of God to take it from there. So that if they believe it, it's belief that's as a result of the power of God working in their hearts and lives, and changing them, and their beliefs and convictions turning around. So, here's the sixth thing we can learn. In spite of the stigma, associated with Jesus' crucifixion. The believer should not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. spite the stigma associated with Jesus' crucifixion. The believer should not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Romans 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God and salvation unto everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the to the Greek or Gentile, that's Romans 1.16, but also Galatians 6.4. Listen to that. These are powerful statements by Paul. Galatians 6.14. Galatians 6.14. But God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, God forbid that I should glory in anything else except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is, as believers, we should have a positive attitude toward Jesus' crucifixion and the gospel because of what they are. The power of God of the salvation. The power of God of the salvation. Here's the seventh thing we can learn. God wants a true believer in Jesus Christ to publicly identify himself Herself with the crucified, risen Jesus Christ. God wants believers in Jesus Christ to publicly identify themselves with the crucified, resurrected Jesus Christ. And God's devised a means for that. It's water baptism. Now, I want to make something very clear here water baptism is not a part of salvation. It's not a necessity for salvation. It's truly faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for us in his death, burial, and resurrection that is our source of salvation. But God has designed a means for those who place their faith in the crucified, resurrected Christ to announce to the world, I am, I am identified as one who believes in the crucified, risen Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sure you've been taught there are two different kinds of baptism in the New Testament. One is spirit baptism. And the Bible indicates that happens to a person at the moment. A person places his or her faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone to be saved from sin. They were baptized with the spirit. You, you don't know that happens. I didn't learn until maybe uh, ten years after I got saved, that that happened to me. But according to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, the baptism of the Spirit, the baptism with the Spirit, is what actually places you into the body of Jesus Christ, the Church. But God devised another form of baptism, and that is water baptism. Spirit baptism is invisible. We don't see it happening to people when they get saved. They didn't see it when it happened to us when we get saved. But it's actual. It actually happened. And in fact, even in Romans 6, that also identifies us with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. In actuality, it's spirit baptism. But people can't see that. But God wants other people to know that that happened in your life. And so he's devised a visible counterpart in a sense of spirit baptism. and That's water baptism. And the idea is, when you're being lowered under the water, Death, identified with the death of Christ. When you're brought up out of the water, resurrection. Resurrected with new life in Jesus Christ, just as he was resurrected from the dead bodily. Now, the word baptizo, where we get our word baptism from, originally had no spiritual significance whatsoever in the ancient world. It was a commercial term used in the dying industry of dying material. And the idea is before a piece of cloth was totally immersed in the, in the dye, it had one identification, one color. But as a result of being totally immersed in the dye and then brought out, it had a change of identification. Before going in there, it was identified with one color. Now it's gone through a complete identification to an altogether different color. A change of identification, that's a concept of, of baptism. That when we trust Christ as Savior, The Holy Spirit, as we experience Holy Spirit baptism, that changes, in actuality, our identification. Because the scriptures indicate, by physical birth, you and I were born in the world with membership in Satan's kingdom of spiritual darkness. That was our identification as unsaved people, in actuality. But Paul says in Colossians 1.13, When a person trusts Jesus Christ as Savior, that believer is brought out of the domain, the kingdom of darkness, that Satan's spiritual domain, over the kingdom of God's dear son. So that spirit baptism brings about, as a result of our faith, a complete change of identification. We used to belong to Satan and his kingdom. Now we belong to God and his son and his kingdom. That actually happened, that change of identification. But God wants the world to know you've gone through that change of identification through water baptism. And so it's the idea, before you're under, you're signifying, before I trusted Christ, I belong to Satan in his kingdom. But now that I've trusted Christ as Savior, that identification is gone. I've got a whole new identification. I'm now identified with Jesus and his death, birth, and resurrection and with God and his kingdom in the world. Now, again, I want to make it very clear, water baptism doesn't save us. It has nothing to do with our salvation. And, uh, and so don't think along those lines. And it's not necessary for salvation. It's to be something that we do as a result of our salvation as a testimony to the world. of this tremendous change that's taken place in the actuality. And Paul in Galatians 6, verse 14, makes this statement. Galatians 6, verse 14, but God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. He's saying, when you trust Christ as Savior, when you trust Christ as Savior, and that becomes known to unbelievers in the world, two things are going to happen. And the way the world's going to know this is through water baptism, the change of identification. Through water baptism, in essence, you're saying to the world, as far as I'm concerned, world, you are now dead to me as far as your conclusion concerning the crucified Savior, Jesus Christ. You, like people in the ancient world, believe, how could he be the Son of God, you know, dying on a cross? And if you draw that conclusion, he's not who he claimed to be, he's not the Savior of the world and all the rest, I want you to know, I used to believe that way too. But now, I count you, world, as dead to me as far as your attitude toward him. He said, that's one thing that will happen. That's your way of saving the world. You're dead to me as far as your rejection of Jesus Christ for who he is. The other thing going to happen, and it often does happen in a practical way, the world is going to say, okay, if you're identified now with Jesus Christ, as far as we're concerned, you're dead to me. In some instances, it's the attitude, I want nothing more to do with you as a result of this. And many people have experienced this, even within family relationships. That maybe they grew up in one religion, but it was a false religion. But then they come out of the sound of the gospel, the spirit of God convincing the truthfulness of that, and they respond and they trust Jesus as their personal savior. Sometimes family members, when they hear that, say, that's it. No more relationship between us and you. As far as we're concerned, you're dead. Uh, Let me give you a good illustration of this. Shortly after World War II, I read a testimony of a Jewish man who had become a believer in the Lord Jesus. He'd grown up in an Orthodox Jewish home. And when World War II broke out, he was in the United States Navy on an aircraft carrier. And he had the the horrible experience, as many men did during the war, of having some of his closest buddies blown to bits right beside him on the deck of the aircraft carrier when they were attacked by an enemy force. And because of all the brutalities of the war he experienced, he came back as a convinced atheist. How can there be a god who would allow these horrendous inhumane things to happen to us human creatures here upon planet Earth. came back as a hardened atheist. atheist. Rejected his Jewish faith, they've been taught, as a young person. But God, by his grace, exposed that man to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God worked in his heart and convinced him this is the truth. There is a God who sent his son of the world to become a human being, who went to the cross at my place, paid in full the penalty of my sins, and God resurrected him from the dead later on. And he trusted Jesus Savior and was gloriously saved. Now, the interesting thing is, his father was a multimillionaire. And this young man was the whole heir of that fortune. The father, put, his father had no other children. And the father already had his will that when he would die, his son was going to inherit all of his wealth. When his Jewish father learned that his son had become a Christian, he was enraged. And he threatened to strike his son out of the will and give all the wealth to somebody else. And, uh, but then he thought about it for a while and he thought, well, you know, if he wants to be crazy enough to become a Christian, I guess that's his business. I'll keep him in the will. But then he said to his son, look, I'm willing to keep you in the will to inherit my wealth as a Christian. But if you dared marry a Christian young woman, I will strike you out of the will. Well, this Jewish believer began fellowship in a very fine Bible-believing church. There was a lovely Christian young woman there, and a romantic relationship began to develop. He married her. When his father heard about it, again he went into a fit of rage. And said, that's it, you married somebody I said you can't, I'm striking you out of the will. But then he thought about it further and said, well, if he wants to do that, I'll keep him in the will. (laughs) But then he said to his son, look, I've been willing to keep you in the will with your becoming a Christian. I'm willing to keep you in the will with your marrying a Gentile Christian young woman. But I'm telling you, and I mean this sincerely, if you dare get baptized with Christian baptism, I will definitely irrevocably strike you out of the will. You won't get one penny of my wealth because then all of our other family members and all of our friends will know you've become a Christian. And I can't tolerate that. That young man struggled for a long period of time. What do I do? What do I do? On the one hand, he's thinking, well, if I don't obey the Lord, and become baptized, be public, identified with the the crucified, risen Jesus Christ, I'll inherit that wealth. And look at all the good things I could do for God with all that money. But on the other hand, The Lord wants me to publicly identify myself with Him before the world. What do I do? And He struggled back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And He finally made the right decision. I've got to obey God rather than man. He was publicly baptized. When His father heard it, He kept His word. He struck him totally out of the world. He didn't get one penny. And He actually had a formal funeral service conducted for His son and said, far as I'm concerned, he's dead to me, dead to me, because now all of our family and our Jewish friends know he's become a Christian, and I can't tolerate that. That's what Paul's saying here. God forbid I should glory except for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. But God wants believers to publicly identify themselves with the crucified Resurrected Jesus Christ through water baptism, but obviously as well by testimony, you know, witnessing to them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We dare not change that gospel message. It's offensive to unsaved people, but they can't get saved through any other means than hearing that offensive message and believing it. It is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe, to Jews as well as to the Gentiles. God help us to be faithful to that message. And not change it, not twist it, not take things out of it or add things to it to try to make it more acceptable to people, but give to them the very clear, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ, which includes the truth, that he died on a cross by crucifixion for the sins of the world. It's the only way people can get saved. Father, we pray that you'll take these very, very significant truths from your word in light of historical background, what people in the ancient world believed about crucifixion, and use it, Lord, to speak to hearts of dear people that might be with us even here today who came here without placing faith or trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, and him alone, in spite of the fact that he went to the cross in their place as their substitute, paid in full the penalty of their sins, so that God could offer to them by his grace as a gift eternal life and full forgiveness of sins. Lord, if there are any dear friends with us today that have never... Trusted Jesus and Him alone be their Savior, we pray that they do so right where they are right now and not leave here without making that place or trust in Him. But Lord, we pray that we who are believers will learn from what Paul was teaching here in your inspired scriptures, that we dare not change, alter, add to, delete parts of that message in order to make it more acceptable to unsaved human beings. Cause us to be faithful in our presentation of the gospel and not to avoid what to the world may be a stigma of the fact that Jesus died on a cross. Lord, help us along those lines for your honor and for your glory. And for this we ask and we also thank you in the name of our crucified, risen present-day mediator on our behalf at your right hand in heaven, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.